Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. For our international listeners, the podcast will be held mostly in English. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 64, recorded July 6, 2022. My guest today is Heather Hubs, director of NADA, the New Art Dealers Alliance, a membership organization for galleries, which also holds art fairs at different locations. Hi, Heather. Very nice to have you. Hi, Daniela. Thanks so much for having me. It's actually NADA's 20th anniversary this year, if I'm not mistaken. But um, before we talk about the development and visions for NADA, I'm very curious to learn a bit more about you personally. How did you grow up? What started your interest in art? Very important. And what were your experiences in the years before NADA? So I grew up in the Midwest in um, the United States, not too far from Chicago in the state of Indiana. I grew up in a small township called Dune Acres, a very special little township in the dunes on Lake Michigan. And I always, I always liked art and I always liked to make art. I, as a kid, I drew and I would make, there's this really amazing like view of Chicago, the skyline of Chicago that you can see from Lake Michigan where I grew up. So if you go down to the lake, there's this really amazing skyline. And I, as a kid, I would make these drawings of the lake and the skyline of Chicago and the sun setting over the skyline. And I would just remake this picture with different colors and did it like over and over again. And I would try to sell them to my neighbors for 10 cents. Did they buy them? Uh, yeah, just to be nice. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. it was basically that skyline of Chicago over Lake Michigan and the sunset and flowers is what I would draw like a lot. And was that also like making it like a desired location that you looked at Chicago and that it was sort of like also as a place, something you desired to be there? You know, I don't think I thought that at the time. I think I just thought it was really pretty. You know, I think I just thought it was like a beautiful thing to look at. And this was, I'm talking like when I was really little, like elementary school. And then, you know, middle school, I think I was more concentrated on music. But then in high school, I took a bunch of studio courses and I was really interested in photography in high school. And then I, you know, went to college and, and I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. and. I guess I should just back up and say that in high school, I, I definitely had a strong interest in art and I had a close friend who also did. And we would go into Chicago often and go to the Art Institute and the other the other museums there, but primarily just museums, you know, galleries weren't really on my radar back then. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's normal, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think now it's a little different with social media and access to information is so much easier now. Did you ever think about becoming an artist yourself? Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. When I went to college, I actually wanted to get a BFA, mm -hmm. you know, a fine art degree. And my parents were very much not into that. They <laughs> they felt strongly that I could do art in my pastime and, you know, I needed to do something that would really, I could make a living at. They didn't believe that that was a possibility with art. So I went to school and majored, I started off with a major in chemistry. Oops. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, I liked chemistry at the time. And I was, you know, my parents were like, you're good at math and science, you should do something. My dad thought, oh, you should be an art conservator. You know, at one point, that was like something he was pushing pretty hard. And 
anyhow, I, I, you know, after my first two years in college as a major with chemistry, and I was still taking studio courses in college. I still took courses, like I took drawing and painting and I took a bunch of stuff in the art school, but I was majoring in chemistry, but I was miserable. Mm -hmm. I was miserable. And <laughs> after my second year, I told my parents I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, I'm not doing it. I, I have no interest in having a career in chemistry or art restoration or whatever it is. And so they were like, that's fine, but you, you know, we're not, we're not paying for any more than four years of college. So I didn't have time to get a BFA. Mm -hmm. I had time to, to do art history. So I switched to, to major in art history and again, continued to take studio courses throughout that time as well. And because of that, you know, I met a lot of people who were artists and some of them had become professionals in the field from that point. So it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, I guess like the people we meet, they very much can shape our path. For sure. It can be very surprising. So to become then an art professional, what were the next steps? I saw that you worked at a gallery even for some time. Yeah, so after college, I actually went to Kentucky for two years and was just kind of had a job, but it was not in the arts. I was there mostly to be with my partner at the time. And then I got an internship in Chicago at Sotheby's. It was unpaid. So I came back to the Midwest and I was commuting in from my parents' house to Sotheby's every day because it was unpaid. So I couldn't afford an apartment in the city. And then after my internship at Sotheby's, I actually got a temp job working for the art fair in Chicago, which at the time was called Art Chicago. Yeah, I remember that. You know, we hired people for our fair in Miami and the fair in New York. So I, you know, I did that exactly what I now hire people to do for a week or two. And then after my first year doing that, someone who worked for the fair called me up and said, Rona Hoffman is looking for an assistant. Are you interested? So then I went to work for Rona. I worked for Rona for two years and learned a lot. I mean, it was like a crash course in how to running a gallery. But I did like the fair a lot. I liked the fair environment. I liked the act, you know, like the big event. I liked that there were all these galleries there from all over the world. And you just had so much exposure to so many things in one moment. What year was that? I worked for Rona from 97 to 98, late 90s. And how was the general atmosphere? I mean, you were young and was it like exciting? What was the feeling, the general feeling when you were going through all these different locations and jobs and all of that? It was super exciting. I mean, there were so many cool young galleries and even not so necessarily young but just like so many great galleries in Chicago and Chicago's always had a very kind of robust alternative art scene like people running alternative spaces and artists run galleries like it's just always been a thing in Chicago and there were many back then and then there were a few really good commercial galleries like Chicago Project Room which Dan Hoog ran for years with his partner Michael Hall and they became very close friends of mine during that time And I think I went to every single opening that Chicago Project Room ever did in Chicago. So it's kind of like it was the feeling of also shaping a scene in Chicago, being part of a, of a particular art scene. It definitely felt like that. It still does. I mean, there's so many people I know. I mean, some of these artists are very successful artists that I met and hung out with in Chicago, like Rashid Johnson and Sterling Ruby. Mm -hmm. And that's just to start, but there's, there's many. And so, you know, over the years, it's just been interesting to see these people succeed and just become kind of famous. And, and even the ones that aren't famous, you know, there's some people who are still 
around making artwork. And every now and then somebody in New York is like, oh, I'm going to do a show with XYZ. And I'm like, oh, I know that person from Chicago. You know, <laughs> it's great. I always liked Chicago. I mean, Chicago is not that big like New York City, but it has this amazing art school also. It has the great institutions. It still has yeah. a functioning art fair, all of that. So at that time in the late 90s, it must have been really very vivid, very vital. Yeah, you know, in the art fair back then, like Art Basel Miami didn't exist. And the Armory Show hadn't started yet. I think the first year of the Armory Show was 1999. So our Chicago was like the fair in the United States. And so all the big galleries did it. And it was a very competitive fair to get into in the United States. And of course, that has shifted with these other fairs coming into play. But yeah, back then it was it was a very important fair and everyone came. And I do think that people still enjoy going to Chicago for all the reasons you just said. There's great institutions. There's great curators. There's great collectors there. There's nice hotels. The food is great. So it's got a lot to offer. Absolutely. I love Chicago. But what made you then, I mean, you were happy, you were working at the fair and it was exciting. You loved the big events. So you already knew probably that you wanted to be more like in the fair business or something like that. And I did. I did. <laughs> I felt like that. That's what I, I felt like I wanted. The gallery was great, but I, I don't know if you've ever worked for an, another gallerist, but I definitely felt like it's kind of hard. I mean, I was... At the time when I worked for Rona, I was an assistant. I wasn't a salesperson. But she at one point was like, you know, you could sell art too. And I was like, I don't know if I want to sell. It wasn't all my taste. And I think it's hard to get really excited about a program that's not yours. That At least that was hard for me at the time. I absolutely can understand that. Yeah. But at the same time, I also was young, very young, mm -hmm. and really had a lot of energy and really liked the, the sort of like dynamism of the fair. Then I heard Tom was hiring people full-time and I applied and went to work for Tom full-time after Rona. And I worked for Tom up until I left Chicago to come to New York. I left Chicago in 2005, but I stopped working for Tom in 2004. Oh, I thought you were already being with NADA in 2003. No, I mean, I was close to the organization. I knew a lot of the galleries that were involved and things like that, but I didn't start working for them until... October of 2004. Okay, but that was still in the very early days. Yes, yeah. I mean, they had done one fair previously, which was run by Janet Phelps. She had a gallery here in New York for a few years. Was that the reason you went to New York? Because of NADA? Or was it more a private reason you felt you want, you needed something bigger? I mean, I definitely had thought about moving to New York and, you know, it wasn't something I wanted to do. But I didn't feel like I was in a position to just move and sleep on couches and not have, you know, a, a job. The first fair that I produced with Nada was in 2004, and I was still living in Chicago at the time. It wasn't until after that that I moved to New York. So I, I definitely primarily moved here to work with Nada, but I was also very excited about leaving Chicago. I had been in Chicago for 10 years, mm -hmm. and I grew up, obviously, like I said before, I, I grew up near there. So moving to an entirely new kind of geographic location was exciting to me. And then New York City is not the worst. So already NADA is there. And there was obviously the need to fund a new Art Dealers Alliance because the old, the American Art Dealers Association was already existing. So what was the need to fund something new? I am speaking from what I believe I should, I guess, mention that I am not the founder of the organization. NADA was founded by Sherry Pascarella in 2002, and she invited 
Zach Foyer, Zach Miner, and John Connolly to co-found the organization with her. So they, they were actually the original board and they're the one that really formed the organization. And Sherry was working in a big gallery and so was Zach, John Connolly and Zach Foyer both had their own galleries. There was a lot of people like Daniel Reich and Oliver Kahn who were, you know, doing exhibitions out of their apartments. And I think they just saw a real arise in mm-hmm. younger galleries and need for a sharing of resources and information that could be done in a non-competitive way. I think they got a group of people together and kind of talked about the idea and it, it just kind of slowly grew over time. And then I think they started off with events like here in the city, different kinds of like public events, but also just getting together, having drinks or barbecues with their colleagues and sharing information. They did some joint advertising and things like that. There was a real desire, there was a real need among that their constituency for a fair in Miami because the only options at the time were Art Basel containers on the beach, yep. which wasn't very big, and the Scope Fair, I believe. And there was just a real need for us more younger galleries to, to be down there. I mean, again, at the time, I was still working for Tom Blackman, and I was kind of approached by Nada at the time to see if Tom wanted to do a fair in Miami. He wasn't interested, so then Nada decided to do it on their own. And that, that was the year that they worked with Janet Phelps, and they did it in a vacant retail space off of Lincoln Road, very close to the convention center, actually. That became a super successful fair, Nada Miami. Yeah, the 2003 fair was extremely successful for several of those galleries. And I mean, I think many did well, but some did so well that they were able to move from Brooklyn to ground floor spaces in Chelsea. I mean, also the whole enterprise, because it's still existing. Also, the past two years probably were, were not so easy and nobody knows what comes in the future. You're the director for a very long time. So actually the shape Nada took in the past at least 10 years or more has very much to do with your vision. Yeah, mine and the board. We have an active board and they're very you know involved in like long-term strategic thinking. It's definitely a combined effort. It's been a lot of fun, for sure. You also just mentioned something about a non-competitive way. And the NADA mission statement also says, we believe in a spirit of friendly competition and the power of working collectively to gain access to resources and to provide services to artists and the public that we could not as individuals, which is a beautiful statement. So there's a lot of importance placed on community within the gallery system and the larger art world. But at the same time, galleries were always colleagues, but they are also competitors. Right. And so that causes sometimes quite ambivalent situations. But does it mean friendly competition? I think we, we need that even more now and into the future. What do we have to learn to form a really mutually supporting community? It's a good question. And I think we're still also continuing to learn what it is that the galleries need. And it changes, right, over time based on what's happening around us. Like, for example, when COVID hit, in March of 2020 and all the galleries were closed, everybody was really scared and worried, understandably. And the landlords, a lot of them were not being very understanding and telling people they still had to pay their rent. And there was just a real need to come together and say something, you know, raise awareness and do something around rent. So we did a big campaign and did a petition and I forget how many signatures we got, but it was it was a lot. It was for a small arts organization and like, you know, a kind of grassroots effort to get the word out. I think we had like 40,000 signatures. It was close to that. And we continued to do work around commercial rent stabilization throughout COVID. And, and we still care a lot about that issue. 
we're based in New York, so we're closer to the, the issues that New Yorkers face. I mean, we know what the city laws are. We don't know what they are in all these other places. But we still talk about this and, you know, try to do programming around it. Also just protecting small businesses, which galleries are. The rent protection you were just talking about, I mean, in New York City, rents are exceptionally high, but it's kind of like everywhere in the world, there are different situations, but nevertheless, it all is connected to real space. Yeah. Another also organized the New York Gallery Open, which is actually about real space. Yeah. It's about going to shows in real spaces of the galleries. And New York City, I mean, New York City is a bit like the Big Apple and it's like also a big art hub and there are a lot of tourists. So that might be a very good place that people are really going to the real spaces. But in general, I would say we find that actually the audiences in the real space decline, which has nothing to do with the sales. They can still be great. And COVID kind of like enhanced that, that it seems the real space, the real exhibition to get people to really move there, it's getting harder and harder. So what is your take on that? Because I think real space is still a very important thing, parallel probably to the digital world, but the digital world cannot show all art. Right. I totally agree with what you just said. And fortunately and unfortunately, social media And, you know, the internet and a lot of these art sales platforms have really driven people to do things online, which is great in a lot of ways. But it also, like you said, people are just not going into the galleries as, as much as they used to and seeing shows in person. And that's sad because that's what the artists want to do. They want to make physical exhibitions that people see in real life, obviously. I mean... Yeah, and the galleries want to do that as well. It's yeah. like a big part of what you do to really do a real exhibition. I'm just sitting right now in a real exhibition and it's, it's just very enjoyable. Do we have to understand the audiences new? As galleries, what do we have to learn and how can we work together with the fairies and all of that? I think there needs to be more education among younger people about galleries. Mm -hmm. And just that ecosystem in general and what it means to have a gallery and why they're important. I think, you know, when I was growing up, there was no social media. I couldn't look at art online, really. And I couldn't look at it on my phone, certainly. This is really just me, what I think. I don't have any proof of this, but I do kind of feel like people are growing up with being able to see everything on their phone or on their computer and they don't have to go to the gallery. They, they have alternatives. Like I didn't have an alternative. It was either you go to the museum or you go to the gallery and you see the show. Yeah, true. So they have alternatives and they find probably those alternatives much more attractive. <laughs> so because they don't have to move from their home. Yeah, they can just do double the work. You know, mm -hmm. they can look at the art and buy the art from wherever they are and they don't have to spend the time commuting to the space and having the conversation or whatever, they can do that and also do other things at the same time. I mean, this is just what I think is part of the problem. So we have the diagnosis and what's the medicine? I think it's education and trying to get people to experience going to see shows and hopefully they find it enjoyable. You know, hopefully they realize like, wow, it's so great to get out and see things in person. And I do think that there was a lot of that when galleries were allowed to reopen and people were feeling more comfortable even going out or about like once people were vaccinated i felt that way i i was like so excited to go into the galleries again and be able to look at stuff in real life it felt so refreshing that's true that was the same here last year that people really really enjoyed it a lot and they cherished the possibility a lot but this year already it's different again you know 
Yeah. So many other things are opening, you know, it, it's not so special anymore. I just find it interesting to, to think, okay, we have to probably learn a lot of things new. And what could that be? You know, education is very true, but how to get it to the people? Because in the end, we want them to have like a super positive, enjoyable experience with art. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I have, unfortunately, the answer to, <laughs> I know. to how you get people educated. But I mean, we try to organize talks around collecting mm -hmm. and we do a lot of tours gallery tours you know for vips and, and sometimes just for the general public and that was a big part of what we did with gallery open was just you know organizing a lot of different tours for groups to come through and be led through i do think that the tours are interestingly more popular these days than they used to be and there is something nice i think about being led you know like someone's taking you around and introducing you and giving you a, a introduction to what you're seeing. No, absolutely. I liked also the idea that in the gallery open, I think there was also one program where gallerists would lead the audience to other galleries. So they would give the tour. Yes. I thought that was a great idea. It was great. That was really fun. So was that different than a tour guide giving the tour? What was the difference? What, what happened there? I mean, I think it just changes the sort of dynamic. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have a new person, a new personality talking to you and leading you through. And you're getting various perspectives on what people like rather than one person's perspective on what they think you should be looking at or something like that. But I think at the end of the day, it's still a gallery tour. Which has a different kind of like outlook on things being a gallerist yeah. themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you developed all these during COVID and after COVID, you developed all those community programs, the tours and the New York Gallery Open. So what is the vision for the coming years for, for NADA? Well, actually, just to clarify, the Gallery Open started before COVID. We started doing the Gallery Open when we stopped doing the New York Fair in 2018. It was kind of our response to not having a fair, we thought, well, we can still highlight the galleries and drive people to the shows and try to do some programming around, you know, the exhibitions and also just some social events. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, there was a time when I was younger when I thought, why does New York need an art fair? It's like an art fair all year round. There's a great reason to have art fairs in New York. I was much younger at the time. It just, it just felt like it's all here. And I think with that in mind, the thought was just like, you know, there's all these galleries here. And our members who are here that we can promote and take people around to see and have them, you know, talk to people and we can do programming around their shows. They can organize their own programming and we promote it. It just seemed like a moment to try out, like, what would it look like if you had a fair spread out over a city? Like, how would that function? Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously we didn't call it a fair. It wasn't a fair, but it was like taking that concept and trying to flip it on a city. And how did the audience react on that? It was great. I think it was great. People, like I said, the tours were always super popular and still remain to be popular. And, you know, a lot of people showed up for the programming that we did. I mean, some of the programming we did was like dinners and things like that, which were a little bit more intimate. Um, we couldn't just have like 200 people at a dinner. But those that came and participated, you know, were, were I thought, very engaged and interested. I mean. There's some people that come literally to everything we do, <laughs> a group of people that really, they're just really dedicated. It's really cool to see that. 
I mean, you're still like an alliance to support galleries. It's not that you're only an art fair organizer. Right. And that makes sense then to also support galleries in different ways. Yeah, yeah. So in one kind of new development is that we're moving our office into a new building where we're going to have two floors, one for our office and one for an exhibition space that will be primarily for galleries to rent and do shows in the city. The idea being that with us, you know, adjacent to the space, but we can be helpful in logistics and obviously in promotion. We're moving over the summer and we're hoping to open the gallery space in September if it all goes well with construction and things like that. It's about a 1,300 square foot space on the Lower East Side in an old historical building. It's really beautiful. We're super excited about this. We currently have an exhibition space. We've had it for only about a year, but we have a little tiny space in a Chinatown mall under the Manhattan Bridge, which has been great for us. But this opportunity to move into this building kind of fell in my lap and we decided to run with it and make it happen because it's it's just, it's a bigger space. It's a more beautiful space and our office will be right on top of it. So it all makes more sense. So it's like a temporary pop-up space for galleries in New York City? Yeah, it's a gallery space that people, members and non-members can rent for a period of time to do shows. We haven't sent out an official announcement about it yet, which we, we will do this summer, you know, inviting people to submit proposals for it. And which is what we've been doing with the Chinatown space. It's just, it's a very tiny space in the Chinatown mall. It's only 90 square feet. Whereas, like I said, this is 1,500 square feet. And the cost difference isn't much. So you're getting a much bigger platform to do a show in, in the new space than in the mall. As you said, you can send proposals in. So there is a kind of application process and it will be decided by the board. It's kind of decided internally. It's not really so much that it's an application process. Obviously, we just want to know what people are going to show. Like, who is it? What do they want to do? And just making sure, like, nothing's inappropriate or, you know, I don't know. They're not showing things that would be offensive or things like that. And also just to juggle the calendar. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how many shows are possible in a year? Well, I mean, technically 12, but the sort of, like, way in which we offer the space is still being finessed. So I don't want to say exactly, but we might make it a situation where you rent it for two months, your show is six weeks, and then you have, you know, a week on each end for install and deinstall. That sounds kind of like more manageable. Yeah. For the galleries also. Yeah. yeah. I think I know Freeze has a space, a building like this in London, and I think they rent it by the month and the shows are just short. Anyhow, I think that's not why we are landing on two months. It's just in my most recent conversation with one of the board members, this was kind of where we landed, thinking that this might be, you know, the only thing about that is that then you have two months of cost instead of one month of cost, which for some galleries might be tricky. But the space is big enough that people could do shows together. Two galleries could split it. Three galleries could split it. So it's open for many different ideas and yeah. uh, exhibitions. Yeah. yeah, that sounds interesting. But it is for international galleries or... They can't be in New York City because it does not make sense for people who have a space in New York City to do something there. Anyone can technically rent it. Even a New York gallery, if, like let's say they had a second show they wanted to do or they needed a second space for a show they were doing. We wouldn't say, no, you can't because you're New York based. Like if it makes sense for whatever reason or, you know, sometimes people don't have spaces, but they organize shows in pop up spaces like Kendra Jane Patrick. She's between Switzerland and New York. She doesn't have a space in New York, but she does shows here. 
it's just like an open space for people to probably develop ideas for and you just see what's going to happen then and it's going to start this fall yes yes exactly Sounds great. Yeah. So there's, on one hand, the times are very challenging. It's like a saying that like challenges are chances. So we all try to, to find the best ways as it's always like in the art world, personal lives. And also what we do is very much connected. Our friends probably are also in the same world. And so how did you go through the past two years? I mean, it was definitely challenging you know i'm a single mom with a elementary aged kid and it's juggling all of the uncertainties and changes things that can just like pop up you get covid and then you, you know you can't go to work or your kid can't go to school and just out navigating that with a job and i mean i'm, I'm grateful for my job <laughs> don't get me wrong but it, it just it's a lot it was challenging it was definitely challenging mm -hmm. but i have an amazing board i have an amazing team And my team is really great. And they have been, you know, just really amazing through this whole process. Some of that stuff we did in early COVID, it wasn't nothing, a lot of work. And for a small team, it was impressive. And especially all working remotely and just kind of being thrown into it. It was, it was kind of crazy. So there were actually some positive experiences. Do you think that this spirit of support, which we at least felt for a while, do you think it's sustainable into the future? I hope so. I do. I, I hope so. I, I mean, I think it's actually kind of scary for me to think about what will happen if it's not, given the political climate. Oh, my God. Yes, I completely forgot about this yeah. right now, just talking to you, but you're sitting in the United States. Yeah, sure. It's so crazy here. I mean, I think it's crazy. Ukraine, I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts. The, the news is nuts. And every day things are happening here in the States that just feel like they're rolling the country backwards. And it's scary. It's scary. And we need to figure out how to, you know, stop these things from happening or at least get some people elected who are going to be able to do something about it because, yeah, it's it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, because at some point, definitely the freedom of art and culture will be affected. And right now, it's some of the last domains where you still can be free. Totally, totally. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, that's super scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, I don't want to end on that, actually. Um, <laughs> I know. But, but generally, do you think... Out of all of this, like sort of all the backlash, the war and COVID, do you think there is a chance we can make something positive out of that? Some learning process, at least sort of like a small part of society went through that can make a difference? I think so. I think so. You know, it, it, it's such a complicated thing to answer because I, you know, I, I kind of believe that like what you put out in the world, like the energy you put out does have an effect. Mm. But I also know that like so many crazy things happen to people, their energy might be totally great and something awful happens. I don't know if I'm making any sense. I understand what you mean. I think it's possible, but people have to get serious. They have to get really serious and really unwavering in what they are going to stand for and band together because... I mean, it's hard not to get back to the political part of it, but I think the reason that the Republicans in the United States are so strong as a party is because they stick together. They align. Mm -hmm. They don't let nuanced things get in the way. And unfortunately, I think the Democrat Party is very divided because it's a more diverse group, which makes sense. 
but we've got to figure out a way to get over some stuff maybe, or, or I don't know. Yeah. The democratic forces have to unite. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard in the States because like, you know, it was all about get out the vote and everybody vote, go mm. vote, go vote, go vote. And then the election happened and it was like almost overturned. And so now you feel like, does it even matter if I vote? And if you can't, if your vote doesn't matter, then what are you supposed to do? You know? Well, then you're not a democracy anymore. Exactly. And that's where it gets really scary. And it gets scary for the whole world because yeah. America was always such a strong defender of democracy. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Heather, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was so good to talk to you. Please find links and a text about my guest in the show notes. For more information on Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast, follow us on Instagram at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf. Visit our website van-horn.net and subscribe to Voices on Art on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art. The Fan Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>